Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 48, Deuteronomy chapter 33. We are quickly approaching the end of our in-depth study of the first five books of the Bible, and I'm sure that by now many of you have fully grasped just how important to our faith in Christ that it is to set its foundation upon the Torah and then to set the New Testament that presents us with our Messiah on top of that. But I also know from talking with some of you that this has been anything but an easy path of discovery. At times it's been painful to realize that we have in the past often relied on on agenda-driven doctrines as the checkpoints of our faith rather than the Word of God as it stands. Now I also know that others of you may remain at least somewhat unconvinced of the continuing validity of the Law of Moses that forms a goodly part of the Torah. Others of you are terribly uncomfortable with the smirks and the words that are directed your way from those who seem to think that you have turned against the long-cherished beliefs of the mainstream church or Maybe you've even watered down your trust in Jesus Christ and instead are adopting some outdated form of self-justification that's proved ruinous to many Jews over 2,500 centuries, uh, 2,500 years rather. Now I ran across something recently that might ease the discomfort for some and do something else for the remainder of you. Validate what you've learned give you the enthusiasm and joy and hopefully the commitment to learn even more of the original testament of the Bible, despite the efforts of too many to try to derail you. One of the scores of sources that I use to create these Torah class lessons is the World Biblical Commentary, and I think I can say without much risk of disagreement, that within the realm of Christian academics, this commentary series ranks as perhaps the best and most complete work of Bible research and exegesis accomplished in the 20th century, and no single work has surpassed it. This commentary series consists of 52 separate volumes, totaling well over 30,000 pages. It has been written and edited by the best minds of Christianity's elite theologians and scholars. But what makes it unique, you see, isn't only the depth of each volume, but the mixture of specialized fields of each of the contributors. Now, this is neither a liberal-oriented nor a conservative-oriented series. It simply attempts to reveal to the layman and the clergy the most up-to-date understandings gleaned from the Bible in a straightforward manner without glossing over the difficulties or, or applying allegory to solve these difficulties. Now the writer of the two volume Deuteronomy study that approaches 2,000 pages in length is Dwayne L. Christensen. Now, Dr. Christensen has a well-rounded background. He received his first training from the American Baptist Seminary, and then he advanced to training at, at MIT, and then it was on to Harvard, 
for his doctor of divinity, and next he added to those accomplishments a long stint at the Pontificate University in Rome, and then later Hebrew University in Jerusalem. Now I tell you all this to demonstrate that what I'm about to quote to you comes from a very studied Gentile Christian scholar who was trained in a variety of theological viewpoints and who is considered one of the greatest living authorities on the Old Testament. So bear with me as I quote to you a paragraph or two from his second volume on the World Biblical Commentary Study of Deuteronomy. Dr. Dwayne Christensen says this, Deuteronomy 33 and 34 are the traditional readings in the synagogue liturgy for Simchat Torah, the celebration that occurs among the Jews when the annual cycle of reading the Torah from beginning to end has come to a close. Now Christians would do well to recover some of this joy of the Torah in public worship. Many have misread the teaching of Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus said, You have heard it, that it was said to those of ancient times, but I say to you, in the book of Matthew, he was not replacing the Torah. He was merely challenging the manner in which the Torah was being interpreted in rabbinic circles in his day. Jesus was interpreting the text as it was written. For when properly interpreted, there is nothing there that is contrary to his own gospel message. And then Professor Christensen continues with this. The Torah is a way of life and a source of meaning and joy to Jew and Christian alike. The Torah was not intended to be something external to us which only the highly trained specialists could understand. The Torah was to be learned by every member of the community, and the message is exceedingly practical. Jesus summed up the matter well when he was asked, Which commandment in the Torah is the greatest? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. The law, the Torah, and the prophets to which Jesus referred on this occasion make up fully one half of the Christian Bible as we know it today. And all of it is built on these two primary teachings from Deuteronomy. We would do well to become more familiar with the words of the Torah as a guide to proper living in the very manner in which Jesus lived and taught his disciples. What better way to do this than to include once again the systematic public reading of the Torah within the context of Christian worship? You know, we enjoy wearing wristbands that asks the question, WWJD, what would Jesus do? Dr. Christensen answers that question in the most fundamental way by saying that Jesus would encourage us to live the Torah life, to teach the Torah principles. Rest assured, Torah class, 
We are doing exactly that, as imperfectly as it may be. And you are all part of nothing less than a latter-day revival within the church to bring back the whole world of God. To make it the center of our lives and our worship. But it's also meant for us to learn to discern. Alright? We don't then, after we discern it, discard it. What it will take is a willingness for us to be molded and shaped by God. That divine shaping, unfortunately, includes pruning. It means having things removed that are dead and dying from our lives. But oh, those things are so warm and comfortable and familiar. But they need to be pruned and removed so that they can be replaced with new and vibrant growth. As Dr. Christensen says so eloquently, what better way could there possibly be than for a believer to get into the Torah and see it for what it is, the way of goodness and life, as defined by the Creator? Make no mistake, the Torah is not there to save us. Yeshua does that. But once we're saved and redeemed by His atoning blood, what else could be our proper response than to serve Him through obedience? And where else can we find what obedience amounts to other than in His written word? If we look into our own hearts as the source of His will for our lives, or we search out men's philosophies, no matter how outstanding they may sound, If we look to those things for the borders and boundaries that that we should live within so that we can dwell in in harmony with Jehovah, then you know, we're going to be drinking from thoroughly muddied waters. Open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 33. you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 238. Deuteronomy 33. This is the blessing that Moshe, the man of God, spoke over the people of Israel before his death. Adonai came from Sinai. From Seir he dawned on his people. Shone forth from Mount Paran. And with him were myriads of holy ones. At his right hand was a fiery law for them. He truly loves the peoples. All his holy ones are in your hand, sitting at your feet. They receive your instruction. The Torah of Moses commanded us as an inheritance for the community of Jacob. Then a king arose in Yeshurun, when the leaders of the people were gathered, all the tribes of Israel together. Let Reuben live and not die out, even though his numbers grow few. And of Judah, he said, Hear Adonai the cry of Judah. Bring him into his people, 
Let his own hands defend him, but you help him against his enemies. And of Levi he said, Let your Tumim and Urim be with your pious one, whom you tested at Massah, with whom you struggled at the Mervah Spring. Of his mother and father he said, I don't know them. He didn't acknowledge his brothers or children. For he observed your word and he kept your covenant. They will teach Yaakov your rulings, Israel your Torah. They will set incense before you and whole burnt offerings on your altar. Adonai bless his possessions except the work he does. But crush his enemy's hip and thigh. May those who hate him rise no more. Of Binyamin, he said, Adonai's beloved lives securely. He protects him day after day. He lives between his shoulders. Of Yosef, he said, May Adonai bless his land with the best from the sky for the dew and for what comes from the deep beneath, with the best of what the sun makes grow, with the best of what comes up each month, with the best from the mountains of old, with the best from the eternal hills with the best from the earth and all that fills it, and the favor of him who lived in the burning bush. May blessing come on the head of Yosef, on the brow of the prince among his brothers. His firstborn bull, glory is his. His horns are those of a wild ox. With them he will gore the peoples, all of them, to the ends of the earth. These are the myriads of Ephraim, these are the thousands of Manasseh. And at Zebulun, he said, Rejoice, Zebulun, as you go forth. And you, Yesachar, in your tents, they will summon peoples to the mountain. There offer righteous sacrifices, for they will draw from the abundance of the seas, from the hidden treasures of the sand. And of Gad, he said, Blessed is he who makes Gad so large. He lies there like a lion, tearing arm and scalp. He chooses the best for himself when the princely portion was assigned. When the leaders of the people came, he carried out Adonai's justice and his rulings concerning Israel. And of Dan, he said, Dan is a lion cub, leaping forth from Bashan. Of Naphtali, he said, You, Naphtali, Satisfied with favor, full of blessing from Adonai, take possession of the sea, the south. And of Asher, he said, May Asher be most blessed of sons. May he be the favorite among his brothers and bathe his feet in oil. May your bolts be of iron and bronze. Your strength last as long as you live. Yeshurun, there is no one like God riding through the heavens to help you, riding on the clouds in His majesty. The God of old is a dwelling place with everlasting arms beneath. He expelled the enemy before you and He said, Destroy! So Israel lives in security. The fountain of Jacob is alone in a land of grain and new wine where the skies drip with dew. Happier you, Israel. Who is like you? A people saved by Adonai. Your defender helping you. Your sword of triumph. Your enemies will cringe before you. 
but you will trample down their high places. The song of Moses of Deuteronomy 32 and now the blessing of Moses that we just read in chapter 33 form what amounts to Moses' last words to the people of Israel. And it cannot help but be noticed though that there's a rather sharp contrast between the messages of these two poems. The song of Moses is essentially the history of Israel's redemption. And that redemption revolves around God's justice system. It's full of warnings and and presents a dark future for Israel if they follow the nearly inevitable path of idolatry and rebellion against Jehovah. Now the blessing of Moses, however, presents the possibility and hope of a happy future with abundance, with godly prosperity. And it does so within the framework of a, of a series of prophetic pronouncements concerning each tribe of Israel separately. Now this encouraging and upbeat message presents a side of Moses that Israel likely never saw before this moment. See, he spent the last 40 years of his life trying to guide a people who resisted that leadership at every step. He presided over the giving of the Torah and the carrying out of the law during this entire time, using the stick far more than the carrot. Because the disposition of those stubborn people he governed required it. The people Moses saw was the one who rebuked and instructed them. Just as with our modern criminal law system, those in charge of dispensing justice deal almost exclusively with the prosecution and punishment side of the equation. Blessings that come from the system of American jurisprudence manifests itself mainly only as the absence of punishment. It doesn't include reward for doing right. Most times God handed out the blessings and Moses handed out the consequences for misbehavior. God made the laws, Moses enforced them. Is it any wonder that after all those years in the desert, leading this reticent nation of three million souls, the Moses angrily struck that boulder to bring forth water instead of speaking to it when Israel was thirsty and far from any known water source. Moses longed for a little credit, a meager amount of gratitude for making these Hebrews' lives easier. But instead, he was usually the recipient of the daily griping and complaining for making Israel toe the mark that was set up by the Lord, not Moses. You know, it seems as if Moses was always the bearer of dire divine warnings 
And he was the agent of God's curses. He was always sober and serious because his assignment and purpose was such a great burden upon his all-too-human shoulders. So for him to be able to give a farewell address that finally spoke only of hope and joy and blessing and a wonderful future, this undoubtedly was a great relief to him. The people likely wondered who that man was that was speaking to them in such a way now after all this time. Moses had been the parent of Israel for the past 40 years. He had to act the part. But as Joshua was about to pick up the baton of leadership and assume the role of Israel's stern father figure, Moses can now transform into Israel's kindly grandfather and enjoy Israel for the last few hours of his life. Now those of you who are grandparents know exactly what I'm speaking of. Those who have not yet attained such a blessing from God might not quite get it. Parents are the heavies in a family. It's the parents' responsibility to order structure, lay out boundaries for those children. Fathers and mothers must establish rules. Then they have to follow through by being sure that they're obeyed. But they must also be the ones who execute the punishment for violation. And these rules are being laid down to these little people who inherently just can't wait to test them. And typically, they don't much like the rules no matter what they are. Unfortunately, it's the norm that because of this dynamic, parents must demand more respect than love from their offspring. Usually in order to attain that respect, the child must acquire a healthy measure of the fear of consequences for daring to cross paths with the all-powerful lawgiver, Dad. (laughs) Now, grandparents, on the other hand, we're a little bit more relaxed about this whole process of dealing with bringing up children. We finally have a little better handle, I think, on what matters and what doesn't. You know, we've seen it all. And our motto has become, This too will pass. (laughs) Grandparents don't have to deal, you see, with either establishing discipline or carrying it out beyond perhaps withholding that second chocolate bar. We tend to take a rebellious grandchild who still thinks he can flush an entire unfurled roll of toilet paper down the commode despite the same results for the ninth consecutive time, and tell them of that time that we washed a dozen of our father's best white dress shirts along with the two fountain pens we forgot to remove from the pockets. Or we'll stand just around the corner where they can't hear us. And we'll adore the creativity 
is they're hatching a plan to make a clubhouse complete with a campfire out of the interior of Grandma's minivan. Oh, yes. Grandparents have a little different perspective on life than a parent could afford to have. See, Moses was now the grandfather of Israel. And for a very brief time, he could look at Israel through eyes filled with adoration and hope and mercy and leave the worry and discipline to somebody else. Now this first verse makes it clear that it was not Moses who wrote down the words of this 33rd chapter of Deuteronomy because it speaks of Moses in the third person and it speaks of him in the past tense. This is written like a person recalling the Gettysburg Address after Lincoln had succumbed to his wounds. Now we find in this first verse an important but not heretofore used title for Moses. He is called for the first time a man of God. Some scholars say that this never before used title for Moses is proof that a Hebrew editor added the 33rd chapter of Deuteronomy a long time after Moses lived. But another explanation is much simpler. A man of God is but another way of saying prophet. And we'll see several prophets in the Bible specifically called a man of God. Moses held the unique office of mediator of Israel. But now that his time was over, it was appropriate to reveal another attribute of Moses and his pronouncements. It is that the words he spoke were often prophetic. Moses indeed was a prophet, a man of God. Now the farewell address that Moses was about to speak looks very much like the great patriarch Jacob's deathbed blessing upon his sons, upon the tribes of Israel, as recorded in Genesis. And like Jacob's blessing, Moses' blessing takes on a number of forms. Now some of the blessings resemble an ordination of the firstborn as the new national authority. Other blessings are hope for a pleasant future. Now, most often these blessings are descriptions of the nature and the character of the various tribes, as they would probably be in their assigned territories of Canaan. Some of these were petitions to Jehovah for their tribal destinies to be supernaturally insured and protected. Now, appropriately, before Moses begins to pronounce his deathbed blessing upon his people, he gives credit where credit is due to the glorious, unmatchable God who formed Israel and who has agreed to be their God and their Redeemer. And to best understand the purpose and context of the first several verses, we need to see that what is being described is the approach of Jehovah from the wilderness regions they're primarily south of the promised land on into the land. Now, the picture painted for us is Jehovah coming from the mountains of these southerly deserts. 
in order to deliver Israel from the cruel hands of Egypt and then to redeem them himself as his people. Therefore, these passages speak of Sinai, the Sinai Peninsula, Mount Sinai, Seir, the region and the, and the mountain, all right, in the land of Edom. And then despite the usual translation of Mount Paran, it is the mountains of Paran that are being referenced. All right, no specific mountain peak called Mount Paran has ever been discovered. Now, next there is a specific reference to a place called Rebebot Kodesh that appears in both the Dead Sea Scrolls and in the Septuagint, the, the first Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, but is not presented as a place in the Masoretic Hebrew text, so we won't find it characterized that way in the complete Jewish Bible. Rebebot means myriads. And so the title of the place is Myriads of Kodesh. Thus the Masoretic text takes the phrase Ribebot Kodesh and instead of making it a place, it makes it into a, a phrase. Myriads of Holy Ones. Thus giving us a mental picture of what? Angels, angelic beings, heavenly beings of some kind. But this idea of God approaching the promised land from myriads of angels when the entire passage is about the desert regions Israel traveled through to get to Canaan just doesn't fit. Okay, Almost for sure this is speaking of an area near Kadesh. All right? uh, not of angels. Since Kadesh is located in the wilderness of Paran right at the border of Seir. Well, for the next several verses in Deuteronomy 33, the various Bible translations can look very different from one another. The blessing of Moses is filled with all kinds of odd phrases that have baffled the language scholars that, in, that are even a couple of Hebrew words that, ha, that appear there that appear nowhere else in the Bible. Okay. So, so the meaning is often in doubt. Now further, some of the phrases seem out of place and at times out of context. So Bible translators and interpreters have had a very difficult time here. We're not going to get into all the possibilities of their interpretation because even the ones that are the most accepted are just a consensus of speculation. Okay, This is one of those times when it seems that even the earliest biblical documents at our disposal have had the text of these particular verses corrupted, albeit in some minor way, such as a misspelling that went unnoticed uh, for copy after copy, or more likely it was a basic Hebrew translation problem. And this is because the earliest Hebrew alphabet, which is sometimes called Proto-Hebrew, didn't even include some letters such as the Aleph, Hevav, and Yod. Okay, to help you understand what that means for us and why these translation difficulties are 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 are, are the difficult ball of worms that they are. Okay, imagine if the King James Bible had been written using a 22-letter alphabet instead of our modern 26 letters. That's not the case. I'm just trying to make an illustration. 
And then someone attempts to convert those English words, formed by using only 22 letters, into English words that employ 26 letters in sounds. Now, much of the time, it would be reasonably doable and produce pretty good results. Other times, it would leave us with some strange words and phrases that just wouldn't make much sense to us. Thus, while the conversion from the most ancient Hebrew alphabet to the more modern one took place maybe 3,000 years ago, the transliterated but odd-sounding phrases that we find here in Deuteronomy 33 would have had an understandable meaning passed down by tradition. But when taking it more literally, because the tradition of its intended meaning has been lost, we have a hard time making sense of it. So we're not going to linger with that. I will make one brief comment, though. In verse 5, we again run to the strange epithet of Yeshurun, as it's referring to Israel. It literally means the upright one. And the idea being expressed in these verses, despite the many variations of the precise wording, is that among Yeshurun, Israel, among Israel, a king arose and it happened during a gathering of the leadership of Israel. Now this cryptic comment is remembering the day that God was made king of Israel by the tribal leaders of Israel at the covenant accepted ceremony at Mount Sinai. That's what's going on here. Now recall that the people of the Exodus said that instead of Israel having a human king as all their neighbors had, they wanted God to be their king. And that was the deal they made. Now the reason for this collective decision, of course, was a noble one in the hearts of some Israelites, not so noble in the hearts of others. Many Israelites truly trusted the Lord, had at least some inkling of His power and His authority and His sovereignty, and they sincerely wanted the Lord to govern them through their mediator, thinking it the best choice. But others, they just didn't want any leader over them. Certainly not that had the power of a king. They had just escaped from the king of Egypt. And so the thought of setting another king over them, more or less their own doing, was more than they could bear. Further, while the Israelites may have accepted the concept of a need for a human king, It's hard to imagine that the leaders could ever have settled on which one of the twelve tribes was going to have the honor of providing that king. Tribalism then is now looks to the welfare of its own members above that of any of the other tribes. Therefore, the tribe that the king comes from always gets special care, additional protection, extra favors, much greater share of power. Thus, there is this never-ending tribal maneuvering that often leads to outright war among tribes to be the dominant one that produces the king or the ruler of that region. You know, the wars we hear of today in the Middle East and in Africa are essentially tribal or they're sectarian. That is, they're Muslim versus Muslim. 
or Muslim versus Christian, or extended family versus extended family. Well, beginning with King Saul, right up until the Romans conquered Israel, we read in the Bible of a litany of conspiracies and murders among the tribal tribal leaders of Israel as they vied for power once they decided they'd rather have a human king than a divine one. The world is in turmoil today because it rejects the God of Israel and instead wants to continue on our rather unsuccessful path of governing ourselves by means of flawed human leadership. Let's move on to verse 6. Verse 6 begins the list of individual blessings that Moses pronounces upon the the tribes of Israel. And the first tribe mentioned is Reuben. Now, interestingly, the very first place, rather, the very place that Moses was standing at the time of this blessing was in Reuben's territory. Reuben and Gad, and approximately half of the clans who together formed the tribe of Manasseh, settled on the east side of the Jordan River, the so-called Transjordan. And on the one hand, it's logical that, that Reuben would be the first tribe mentioned because he was Jacob's firstborn. Yet nearly three centuries earlier, Jacob removed those firstborn rights of inheritance traditionally due to Reuben because he had had sexual relations with Jacob's concubine, Bilah. So instead, that firstborn inheritance was split into two. One part of it went to Judah. The other part of it went to Joseph, or technically, it went to Joseph's son, Ephraim. Judah was given the right to rule over Israel, while Ephraim was given the double portion part of the firstborn blessing, which means, double portion means, wealth and abounding fruitfulness above all of his other brothers. Well, the blessing is in the form, actually, of a plea to the Lord that the tribe of Reuben would live and not die, meaning that Reuben would not become extinct through absorption of it by another tribe of Israel or by Reuben being conquered and assimilated by a foreign culture. And as we follow the fortunes of the tribe of Reuben on into the future, we're going to find, indeed, it would survive as a separate tribe well on into the time of the judges, and it's also mentioned in the earliest era of the time of the kings. But Reuben almost becomes an afterthought eventually. Reuben became insignificant as a tribal entity, meaning that its population diminished greatly. It lost any meaningful political power. Now, because we Westerners have such a meager concept of how tribalism operates, let me interject that what I've just described as having happened to Reuben was a normal and usual ebb and flow among tribal societies. 
tribes don't just disappear. Typically, their numbers drain off into a rival tribe, more often than not due to intermarriage. There was nothing supernatural about a large tribe becoming small or a small tribe becoming large through some kind of political or economic circumstance. Perhaps a trade route that ran through their territory would become popular and so they'd collect taxes and tolls. Or maybe a tribe might control a seashore that as shipping evolved it would become an ideal port as a major trade highway uh, so that tribe would suddenly find themselves being wealthy merchants. Or on the other hand a tribe, say like Dan, could find itself living on the border of an aggressive people such as the Philistines and they'd be no match for them. Therefore, a tribe's fortunes would rise and fall, and, and, and with it rode power and prestige, or maybe even near extinction. Not extinction in the sense that the genes of that tribe were eradicated, but rather extinct as a separately identified tribal entity with its own government. A tribe is, after all, merely people that form a large extended family. When a tribe began to lose its grip and the people of that tribe recognized that there was no foreseeable hope that their own tribe could remain viable, many of its members would consider ways to solve the problem as it pertained to them personally. And one way was for their daughters to marry into larger and more powerful tribes. Another was for a family to just migrate into another tribal territory, live there. Living there did not automatically make them a member of another tribe, but it did add to the economic and military strengths of the tribe whose territory they now lived in, simply by the addition of more people. Just as it lessened the economic and military strength of that migrating family's own tribe and tribal region. Therefore, a tribe was usually quite amenable to accepting peaceful newcomers. We find this exact thing happening to the tribes of Israel. But as opposed to other of the world's tribes, Israel's tribes had their futures more or less predestined by the Lord. The bedside of Jacob. And those destinies were reaffirmed here in Deuteronomy by Moses. Well, the next tribe addressed is Judah. Now, before we discuss Judah, a logical question to ask is what the rationale is, or if there is one, for the order of the tribal listing in the blessing of Moses. Why that order? And for this, there's not a consensus. But it's pretty clear that neither military battle order, as illustrated by how the tribes were set up in groups of three around the wilderness tabernacle, nor was birth order involved. Even though Reuben is mentioned first, Judah is certainly not the second child born to Jacob, and even though Leah's first four children are mentioned first, then afterwards the order gets all confused. Jeffrey Tigay says, that one needs a map opened up before us to understand the order 
of the tribes is presented here and that the order has to do with geography. All right, and with the boundary lines that are assigned to each tribal region. Beginning with Reuben, the territory where Moses is standing, the next tribe mentioned is Judah, where the Israelites would first cross into the Promised Land. And then, then afterwards, there would be Levi, right, who got places all up and down the frontier. Right? Then the order of tribal blessings follow a path that heads northward to Benjamin, then through Benjamin into the contiguous regions of Ephraim and Manasseh, the Joseph tribes, and the next Zebulun, right? and then its neighbor to the east, Issachar, and then continuing east, as we watch the blessing of uh, Deuteronomy 33, cross back over the Jordan into the territory of Gad. See it here? Okay. Then north to Dan. All right. And then south from Dan to Naphtali. And finally, westward to Asher. Levi, which was given no ter- territory, is dealt with in between the blessings given to Judah and Benjamin, undoubtedly, because this is the area where Jerusalem would be. Right in here. You see Jabus? That became Jerusalem. Alright? And there, Levi would serve at the great temple. Well, Judah, the ruling tribe out of which the Messiah would come, is given a blessing that seems to foresee a time of war and the need for the Lord God to hear the prayers of Judah, aid him in its battles, and then bring the soldiers back home to their families. Okay, The word used to describe the way in which Judah beseeches the Lord and in which the Lord hears Judah is a very familiar one to us here. Shema. Shema means to listen and obey, or listen and take action. It does not indicate the passive act of listening and only only intellectually understanding the plea, but going no further. Up to this point in the Torah, the plea has been for Israel to shema, to hear and obey God. Now the plea is that God would shema, hear and act on Judah's behalf when they call on him for help. Well, next, the Levites are addressed. And since the Levites are God's own set-apart priests, then the blessing is focused around their role in society as teachers of God's law and officiators of the all-important rituals. For only the fourth time in the Bible, the Urim and Tumim are mentioned. These were the two stones stored in a special pouch that was attached to the breastplate of the uh, high priest. And they were used to determine God's will in certain matters. Now, how precisely they were used and how it is they indicated the divine decision has been lost over the centuries. Even the precise meaning of the words Urim and Tumim are in doubt. Some think that the names are indicative of the first and last letters of the Hebrew alphabet. What is self-evident is that the type of answer that the Urim and Tumim could give 
was limited to more or less a yes or a no. Well, nevertheless, the plea from Moses is that the honor of using the Urim and Tumim would remain in the hands of the Levites. That's the faithful ones of verse 8. And that God would continue to reflect his will through the use of those two stones as appropriate. Well, then after the subject of the Urim and Tumim, Moses refers to the Levites as those who were tested at Massah and Meribah. In other words, it makes the Levites as those who were the real object of the Lord's testing at the wilderness stops of Meribah and Massah. If we look at Exodus, go back and look at Exodus 15, 24, and 25, we see this. Don't go there, I'll read it to you. The people grumbled against Moses and asked, What are we to drink? And Moses cried to Adonai, and Adonai showed him a certain piece of wood, which, when he threw it into the water, made the water taste good. There Adonai made laws and rules of life for them, and there he tested them. So the idea is that while all Israel went through this ordeal, it was actually the Levites who were being measured by the Lord to see if they were the right choice to be his personal priests. As is more common than you might suspect in the Bible, there are two word plays in verse 8. Massah means testing place. Meribah means challenge place. So the words of this passage are whom you tested at the testing place and who you challenged at the challenge place. I only point this out so that you can see that the names of places and locations in the Bible are almost always established by something of significance that happened there. Or or maybe due to an outstanding feature of the place, like Beersheba, seven wells. Okay. Therefore, over the centuries, a place, a place name might actually get changed as one culture who's named the place over or due to a significant happening in their history gives way to another and newer culture that has something of a different significance happen at that same place, and so they rename it. Now, verse 10 is essentially the result of what happened with Levi as recounted in verse 9. And it harkens back to the golden calf incident of Exodus 32. Now even though it was Aaron who actually led the rebels in molding that graven image of a calf, it was also Aaron and his family, when they were confronted by Moses for this horrible sin, who saw their error and they went and stood with Moses against those who went right on worshiping that calf. Moses and Aaron being Levites, it was natural that members of their tribe, Levi, would also come and stand with them. But not all the Levites did. The result was that the Lord ordered Moses, Aaron, and the Levites who joined them to go about killing all Israelites who continued to bow down to the golden calf. This also included putting the sword 
to many of their own family members, which undoubtedly would have included, in some cases, their mothers, fathers, sons, and daughters. It was this act of repentance and their willingness to forsake that which meant the most to them on the face of this earth, their immediate families, that merited them the honor of being chosen from among all the tribes of Israel to be the Lord's set-apart servant tribe. Now, never one to miss showing you a good example of patterns being established in the Torah and then reoccurring in the rest of the Bible, I ask you to listen to Jesus in Luke 14. Luke 14, 25. Large crowds were traveling along with Yeshua. Turning, he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, his mother, his wife and his children, his brothers and his sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Exodus 32 and Deuteronomy 33.8 form the context for this verse in the New Testament. This is not about the commandment to honor your mother and father. It's not about establishing an an exception to that foundational principle. So hating your father and mother is not that we're to go out and kill our families if we find them committing idolatry. Rather, it's that we have to be willing to let go of anyone and anything at the Lord's direction if we're going to follow Messiah. It is that we might have to make some tough and heartbreaking choices. Ask most Jews that have come to believe, and they'll tell you that is really true. And Yeshua says to essentially make that same choice in principle that Aaron and Moses and those who allied themselves to them made back in the days of the Exodus. Well, we'll continue with this next week.